Hey, my name is Julie Leone and this podcast is called What's Your Thing? This is where I have conversations with people about their passions, ideas, pastimes, missions or lifestyle that I find inspiring. I hope you do too. Hello, this is Julie. Um, this is our second attempt after children and PlayStation seem to interfere with the uh, uh, technological advance <laughs> communication here. I'm here this week with Michael, who um, I met through the CCP, which I'll leave him to tell you a little bit more about. So over to you, Michael, how would you introduce yourself to people? How do you think of yourself? Um, uh, well, I met you when I fairly recently emerged from about, um, I think 10 years, basically at not really being much involved in normal life, but studying psychotherapy and studying uh, Indian psychology at the same time. Um, so, so I was fairly newly qualified when, when we met. Um, so I met Michael, so I moved from Kent to Wales and I wanted um, to go into therapy and someone in Kent had said, you must go to the CCP to do a course. And I did a, a weekend course in alchemy archetypes in the unconscious and loved it and said, oh, have you got any therapists in my area? And they pulled out a really long old fashioned card index box um, that had one card for Wales as Scotland and Ireland and one person on that card um, and I was thinking oh well, that's it they're never going to have anyone and it turned out that it was Michael who lived over the hill from me about 20 minutes away so that's how we met he was my therapist for a number of years and I guess we've become friends and co-searchers together and I guess um, obviously I've asked you on here to talk about what your thing is at the moment over the years that I've known you there have been many things but what what's this okay. thing at the moment? Well, I probably have three main things, I think, which sort of link. Um, one is psychotherapy, which sort of for me is kind of the journey of the soul, really, um, which never stops. Um, in fact, it accelerates, I think. Uh, and I suppose the other things for me have been sport, which has been very much still is part of my sort of own growth, I think. Um, uh, trying to play tennis with more ease. I played tennis for the county for years, but um, uh, it's that whole freedom of movement seems quite relevant really. Um, and then all my life really, I've been hugely enjoyed working as a builder. So for example, I've built, <laughs> our, I've built our own house and whatever. And building of course is a, is a symbol for working with oneself. So anything, anything any of us ever build is an expression of what's going on inside. So. How do those three things coincide? So you, you built a built a house, play tennis, and and it's like <laughs> therapy. And then obviously I met you at the CCP, which is a Sufi um, center, isn't it? So how would you describe how those things connect? Because that seems like quite a mix. Um, well, it's not. Sport is actually you can find that everything you ever want to find out about yourself through sport. Um, uh, so I had an Indian friend who was a great um, doctor and healer and psychotherapist. He refused to, to take anybody unless they also did martial arts with him because he said, we need to develop the feminine and the masculine and we need to develop work through the body as well as the mind. So actually, I think they're really connected. And have you always been a tennis player or a sportsman? Have you always been interested in? Um, 
No, I used to climb mountains because I grew up in the mountains of Norway mostly. Um, and then there were no tennis courts <laughs> and nobody to play with. So no, I've, I started much, much later really in my sort of thirties really. Um, so yeah. And how are all those things coming together at the moment for you? Given that we're in COVID and in lockdown and, and in November, no, December, um, December, December. Well, they're coming together in the sense that years ago, I started making a few notes for psychotherapy clients about sort of basic things they might like to know, like how to work with their feelings or something. And mainly because I got so fed up with saying the same thing to people over and over again. And I thought actually I could save them some money and me some hassle if I just put it in some notes. And that's um, finally developed into a book, which this is, subtitle is, um, uh, a, psychotherapist, a psychotherapist explains how you can heal yourself of depression. And actually the main title was the, was the one that took me about 10 years to work out. <laughs> and the, the, the main title is the one word love, because actually I don't think counselors and psychotherapists in general have much idea of what they're actually trying to achieve. Um, and that, I mean, there isn't a single answer to people's problems, but, but I define love as taking joy in um, appreciating and relating with everyone and everything. Um, so love is actually basically having fun being in the world and caring about it. Um, and actually, when people get depressed, um, I think what's happened is that love has collapsed. Um, for very good reasons, usually because people have had a really hard time or, you know, there's been a disaster or whatever. Um, and sometimes people are depressed because actually they've never known love. So they've never actually known joy in relating with people or relating with activities or, um, or, the, or even nature. Uh, so actually, if there is a key to get out of depression, I think it is basically to learn to love. Uh, and to trust. Okay, so that all feels massive, but I feel a bit overwhelmed. <laughs> so let me just unpick some of that because that's like whoa. So, Thirty years to work it out. Well, okay, so give me more than three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I okay, so take it because you just said a phrase then that struck me about love collapsed, and it's all it made me yeah. wonder where where love is then because I guess we tend you know if you think about Valentine's Day, it's kind of it's something. I generate for you or I generate for it but when you say love collapsed you said that that's in the passive tense isn't it so kind of that tell me more about that what do you mean by that well I think when when somebody's life is going on okay and then they fall into depression which means that generally speaking when we get depressed we withdraw from social contact uh, we find it difficult to get in touch with people. We lose enthusiasm for what we're doing. We feel tired. Um, and we sort of get, lose our contact with the world, really, I think. Um, and the opposite of all that is actually love. It's Love is the only thing that makes um, being in the world enormous fun, basically. Um, so... Uh, and that's very understandable if you, I mean, I don't know whether we have such a thing as a soul, or, you know, it's, it's, I, don't, I don't know whether the soul is a wonderful model or whether it's a real thing and it, it doesn't really matter. But 
the soul is very intelligent, some deep level of our unconscious. And when things have gone badly enough, it, it loses its interest in love because it's just given up, basically, it's in despair. If things go wrong enough for long enough, it starts to despair. And then it loses its ability to love. So the challenge is to try and reignite that. Okay, so I just have to give you a little picture that came into my head as you were saying that to try and make sense of it. So I had a picture of um, a horse chest, no, a sweet chest. Which are the ones that are prickly rather than armory? You know, the prickly ones that were kind of little prickly. I don't mean that in a bad way, but we've got these little hooks like Velcro hooks normally that go into the world that attaches to love and other things. But it almost like in depression, they kind of fall off. So we become sort of we lose our antennae and we can't reach out and we can't attach, I suppose, to things. I don't know. Is that in any way a useful reflection back onto what you're trying to say? Well, I think it is, but it could be a bit misleading because. Okay, tell me. The prickliness. Yeah. One of the, the other word. great things about love is that it's non judgmental. Yeah. And if somebody's actually quite a long way along the road to a greater capacity for love, they don't judge anymore. Um, so, which again flies really in the face of kind of romantic love. The um, oh, he's for me because tick, 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 or she, you know, that. So it's very different the kind of love you're talking about. Yeah, no, I'm not talking about romantic love at all here. Um, no, I'm not. I'm talking about love, which is much, much bigger than than um, relationships or sex. Um, yeah. Okay, so I still need more pictures to get it because it's so. I don't think we're taught this stuff, are we? Because we're taught about loving your mum and loving your dad and loving the cat and loving the dog and finding someone to fall in love with. But yeah. you're sounding like the love that you're talking about is kind of transcends all of that, almost kind of encompasses all of that. Well, um, this guy. <laughs> so this Buddha, the Buddha sitting cross legged. Yeah. Buddha and Jesus knew how to love. And that was unconditional for anybody. Um, so that's that's love. So it's really weird when one when one starts to learn a bit about love. You, it's really odd because you're no longer seeing the world the world in terms of good and of good and bad, um, and so you can feel actually quite lost because a lot of people define themselves by what they think is good and what they think is bad. Yeah, and kind of me and not me. And yeah, at the moment, for example, I can hardly bear to hear the number of people who define themselves by not being Donald Trump. I mean, they've got no idea at all how to love. He, he's a person like all other people. So there's no reason why you shouldn't love him as well as everybody else. Wow. So this really, really is demanding of us much more than our narrow definition of, of yeah. love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love, you, love is not the same as liking. You can still dislike somebody, but you can still love them. Do you know what? Can we? I don't know how far, how personal you want to get to say no. I don't want to answer that. But I'm curious about your own journey with this. Like, I don't. I don't know if you've ever had depression or how. You know, how how do you how do you know this stuff personally? Maybe can you kind of root root what you're saying a bit more in kind of lived experience. For those of us whose minds are slightly blown. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can. Um, 
Well, probably until the age of about 45, I was able to function, but without knowing it, I was probably pretty depressed and, and pretty unhappy. Um, uh, and I think I was basically, for all sorts of reasons, more or less terrified of human beings. I did a great job of concealing it, but I was. Um, and then, um, then I could function, but I was always a little bit nervous about saying I'd definitely do something on Thursday week. Because, <laughs> because I might not know how I'd feel on Thursday week. <laughs> um, but, you know, I got through, I ran my own business and I made hundreds of films and God knows what. Um, well, and what, had you got kids by the age of 45? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. See, yeah. Yeah. So, so there'd been some level of see one Tuesday then. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, yeah, uh, and then various things happened, which looking back, it's it's almost difficult to imagine that they happened by mistake. It's almost like they were designed. Um, so just before 1990, I think my whole life completely disintegrated. Um, in the space of a few weeks, I managed to lose uh, my home, my wife, my job, most of my money, my family, my dog, <laughs> almost everything. Um, uh, and, and my career, really, because making documentary films, which is what I was doing, was um, had come to an end anyway. There was no market anymore. Um, so... Um, uh, and then um, various things happened. One was that a friend said, what are you doing next week? To which I replied, well, nothing in particular. And she said, well, okay, well, let's drive to Switzerland and we'll go and listen to a spiritual teacher called Pierre Belaya in Khan. So we turned up high up in the Alps. Um, there's a huge campsite high up there and an enormous tent, and then hundreds, hundreds of us sat around in this tent waiting for something to happen. And then this um, uh, old, old guy comes in and everybody stands up in total silence. And then when he sits down, we all sit down and he starts to teach. And for the first 20 minutes, I sat there thinking, this guy is completely crazy. <laughs> and then after a bit, about 20 minutes, I thought to myself, hang on a minute, Actually, I think the rest of the world is completely crazy. And I think this guy is actually saying. And anyway, it was the first time I'd been in the presence of somebody who really knew how to love. And it was actually overwhelming, really. I realized that he was sort of seeing the world in a, in a sort of radically different way. And actually the pain of it as well, because of course, the more you love, you, the more you can identify with everyone else. Um, and then, well, yeah, if I want to get really personal about this, I can remember about four days into that retreat, which were incredibly intense. You basically meditate and do practices day and night. Um, I was sitting in this big group and I suddenly felt this really searing pain in my heart. Um, and I really wondered whether I was having a heart attack. And, um, uh, and that's... Um, and he was talking, and as, as he as he talked, um, he suddenly looked vaguely in my direction and said out of nowhere, 
you know, sometimes when you start to do spiritual practice, you can feel as if your heart is breaking. He said, don't worry about it. It's not a heart attack. It's just your heart breaking. And it literally broke. Um, and that was, and it's like a whole lifetime's pain was that, actually, of terror relating with other, other human beings, this sort of unfulfilled longing for intimacy and trust and companionship and so on. So that was the beginning of a journey, really. Um, wow. Yeah, um, and then late, shortly afterwards, um, I, mean, I then went through the most incredible time when I, I really couldn't function in the world. And I, I just, night after night, I just had these enormous archetypal dreams, which were, um, I took all my energy really. Uh, luckily I found a psychotherapist who could help. Um, uh, so that went on for several years, really. Um, uh, and sort of during that time, at one point, like so many people, I had one of these weird experiences of for a few days of a really altered state of consciousness when, you know, you suddenly sort of realize that the world doesn't seem to be quite what you thought it was. And it, it seems to be some sort of shimmering mess of light or something. And you know all this stuff uh, people talk endlessly about mystical experiences but they're pretty weird and it's obvious we just have the capacity to enter different states of consciousness um start seeing through people and all this sort of weird stuff were you not worried that you were going mad at that point i was intensely worried about getting mad and, and ending up living on the streets yeah absolutely. yeah 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 no because that sounds scary um, if i think because on the on one hand i think oh i'd love to have an experience like that and the other part of me thinks yeah but how would i feed the kids and get up and go to work the next day i think i think it's only if you're a spiritually stubborn people like me the universe has to actually more or less completely destroy you in order to get the message across <laughs> that's a, and your capacity, I know, like you're telling this story, this is something that's always struck me about you. You tell the story about, oh, I lost everything and here I am, you know, potentially on the streets. And yet you've always had that, my experience of you is that you've had that capacity to laugh. And it seems like that laugh that you do, there's something in that. I remember when we had sessions together and I would be telling you of the most painful things and you would kind of laugh. And whilst that sounds cruel you know it's like it's not what you're meant to do it's what therapy training tells you not to do do not laugh when your client is distressed but there is I find myself doing it now with clients but and for me when I do it it's kind of a laugh it's a laughing with at the pain that yeah. kind of recognizing well, something <laughs> common so I'm curious about what that is yeah, yeah well maybe we should be struck off but well <laughs> One of my brilliant teachers is a man called John Daly. Um, when I was doing the psychotherapy training, and I was in therapy with him for four years, I think. Um, and the thing is, one of the things I found was that um, whenever I came up with parts of myself that I realized which were really completely dire, um, John would invariably burst out laughing just from recognition uh, because yeah. John had been there. And I think he was obviously thrilled that I got there as well. <laughs> So, you know, once, once you start to really come across your own sort of capacity for envy or violence or racism or, or God knows what, John will always crack out laughing. And so eventually I realized, well, if it doesn't bother John, <laughs> maybe it shouldn't bother me either. Oh, so say... tell me something more about that. Sorry to interrupt. Just, okay, because we've got this image of love. And I think on one hand, there's 
like you were talking about, you should, you know, loving Donald Trump and loving, I suppose, serial killers. And then, but you're yeah. also saying there, you know, our inner in, innate, you know, need to want to kill people and and our prejudices. And so, so do those two things run? How do those two things work together? Or is it that one, you know, when we're in this space of being able to love, does the other shadow stuff just go or what happens? Do I have to get, because I'm not there yet. <laughs> it's really interesting. I don't, I don't really know the answer. Um, it does, it does, it does more or less go, but it, it also loses its force. Definitely loses its force. Um, but why it's there is fascinating. It's, I mean, some of it is just Paleolithic software. That most of our software is actually chimpanzee software. Um, and actually, it's really worth reading a few books about chimpanzees or watching them or something. Um, so actually, you know, some things like, for example, whatever they say, human beings love fighting, actually. I mean, that's what's on television every night. Uh, we're fascinated by it. Um, and actually to have survived, well, why wouldn't we? Because if you can't bloody well fight, you wouldn't survive. So, you know, some of it's just natural and inevitable because our ancestors wouldn't have managed to get through life and breed and bring up our ancestors, the rest of our ancestors if they hadn't been pretty good at survival. Um, yeah, but then it gets a lot, the question gets a lot more difficult, I think, because for example, why should we love cruelty um well can we and should we and well that's a question julie I've, i have no idea i mean it's hard to hard hard to say yes isn't it but... so, so when you go back to your kind of the thesis of your book is that love is a cure for depression and yeah. yet my experience of kind of working with people with depression is that there's lots of often lots of self-loathing and shame yeah. and um you know often it is kind of negativity turned inwards rather than outwards yeah. Yeah. so so how how do you work with those two how do you do that <laughs> how do you get from that place of kind of self-loathing and shame and um despair and uh you know numbness often yeah. how, how yeah. do you how do you get from there to the kind of love you're describing how do you, practically i want practical answers now i'm a practical girl <laughs> i know probably where you mostly know the answers um, the, the first thing to do is to see it and that can take ages actually and it can take a very loving therapist to be able to see for example the extent to which you might hate yourself for somebody who hates themselves uh, it's really difficult to to recognize um so once you can see it, or you might see that you actually basically hate other people, or you might see that you basically hate members of the opposite sex, or you know, it can be anything. Once you see it, in many ways, the battle's over because it comes into, into the light of consciousness. And I, I, know, I know it sounds like a metaphor, but it, it really does come into the light of consciousness and then it, it, it weakens. But you can then do real old-fashioned cognitive therapy with yourself and just instruct the mind, you're not, you're not having this. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Um, and this is very Indian because the Indians don't see the self as the mind in classical Indian psychology. The mind is just the mind. And it's um, it's good for processing information and it has lots of concepts and attitudes and things like that. But for the Indians, they've always said 
who the hell is it who's observing the mind? That's who you are. So if you don't like your mind, well, just train it to do something else. And they really do have a much more, in a sense, casual attitude to the mind. Much more dictatorial attitude to the mind, actually, is probably a better way of putting it. So um, this is that cognitive, you know, behavioural therapy where I might be saying to clients, right, you know, let's spend some time focusing on the positive and what are your strengths and what what is going well and who are the people that support you. So it's, I always think of it, it's a bit like turning, if someone's looking yeah. towards the shadow, it's kind of like turning them around to go, well, look, look the sun's over yeah. here. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, it is. The um... <laughs> And yet you're smiling, so that, it is and it isn't. It is and it isn't. Okay. When you say, what are your strengths? That's a really interesting question. Okay. Because we're all hopefully intelligent enough to know that we're perhaps reasonably good at maths or reasonably good at writing English or reasonably good at tennis or whatever. So we can know our strengths like that. But one thing I remember deep into a retreat, um, I did an annual retreat for a week or two every, every year for about 20, 25 years, I think. One thing you might discover when you're very deep in meditation is a sort of sense of, oh my God, this is who I am. <laughs> I mean, it's not what I thought I was at all. And that can be a pretty, pretty big moment, actually. Um, so that's like that scene in Shrek. Sorry, I'm just going to dumb it down a bit. Where um, Shrek, I think it's Shrek or Donkey says you're like an onion and you're kind of unpeeling. It's almost like your strengths are on the surface and then in meditation you're peeling off layers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if everyone, whether everyone gets the same place at some point, but I can remember a time of, um, of suddenly having this sense of at a sort of fundamental level of the most incredible innocence and incredible beauty. It is almost like realizing that I was what you might call the soul as opposed to the person I thought I was. Um, uh, so could you locate that? Like, is it it? Because when you're talking, it's like, to me, that sounds like more inside, but does it have a, oh, that might be a stupid question. <laughs> It's not cognitive. It's not cognitive. It's uh, it's a direct experience. Right, which is why it's hard to get your head around if you can't <laughs> experience it. It's like if, if you look at a beautiful sunset, you can't get your head around it. You just know it's a beautiful sunset. Yeah. The information just arrives. Um, so, so there's endless levels. It's a fantastic start for people just to acknowledge what they're good at, and for some people that's really hard. It's like. You know, for, you know, so many people have been brought up to be good at head stuff, and if they're actually incredibly good at caring, uh, and, uh, you know, that's not so easy to, or if they're incredibly good sometimes of being a mother, which is sometimes incredibly devalued, um, it can be difficult for them just to acknowledge, oh, wow, you know, I'm great at this. Um, and so does this cycle back so we started the conversation talking about building and tennis <laughs> and, I, and i'm curious that we kind of so can you sort of weave them into what you're saying a bit more now for yourself maybe interesting building is just one of those things i happen to like doing um i, I like building structures i like carpentry i like plumbing i like doing the wiring i just like doing things with my hands always have done 
there, I guess that's a sort of, that's, uh, well, that's a good example, really, because the sort of schools I went to, nobody valued any of those things. The idea of doing doing something with our hands was something for the laborers to do. It wasn't for those of us at expensive schools. So it took me some time just to, actually, I found it really difficult going into my first career in the film business of um, doing things with my hands. I had to get over it, actually, um, because it was a low status thing. Um, so, so now I just do things with my hands. I'm very happy doing, doing things with my hands. Um, tennis is a bit more complicated. It, it just so happens we've got a, a serious tennis coach in Wrexham who is half tennis coach and half tennis player and half mystic, I think. Um, but he wants me to play like, he, he would like, like me to play tennis like Roger Federer does or like he does, which is effortless. And it's like those people are actually doing something different. They're not, it's, it's a flow, it's an ease. So it's, it's like liberating the human spirit to just to do what it does um, without anything getting in the way. Um, that infuriates Chris when I pay three quarters of a shot and then stop it or don't trust it or whatever. Just do it. So you know, it's like some of those Zen books, like Zen in the Art of Art. Yeah, I was just, thinking of that. And I was just, thinking, just do it. Yeah, and I was thinking, you know, I'm learning to be with horses and there's been moments. Yeah, there you go. When I'm on a horse, there's been many, many moments when I'm on a horse where I'm thinking about too much and it feels clunky and my legs hurt and my stomach's hurt, everything's hurting but then there's the occasional yeah. moment where I, yeah, exactly. I'm at one with the horse and it just works and yeah. it doesn't last very long but there's something absolutely yeah, beautiful exactly. about when it happens is that it exactly. And, exactly. and and so and how does all this link to love does it because <laughs> for me on the horse there's something of that I wouldn't necessarily have used that word, but there's something of that yeah, yeah, yeah. almost to like, oh, yeah, yeah, a, re a release or a relief or yeah. something, a letting go of something. I yes. think. Yeah. Is and that it? <laughs> doesn't love connect very closely with beauty as well? So, um, that, but beauty's um, a dodgy old word to use as well, isn't it? Because then we're talking Botox and. Uh, <laughs> And plastic <laughs> surgery. So I mean, it's just like you're using beauty in a different way as well, are you? Uh, yeah, probably. Well, if I make something that's beautiful, actually, generally speaking, other people think it's beautiful as well. Um, uh, I think that applies to most people. Um, uh, yeah, beauty in the case of people, it's very interesting that actually. I, I think, well, once again, this is probably pretty Indian, but what, what makes a person beautiful is their light, actually. Uh, in, in classical Indian psychology, it's uh, in the energy called sattva, the energy of light and intelligence. It's a very fine energy. And when someone has light, they're radiant. And then they're beautiful. It doesn't matter what physique they have, really. Yeah, no, and I've experienced that where I look at some people and just, and there's moments, isn't it? It's not even a some people thing. It's some people at some moments are just glowing. Yeah. From the inside, kind of lit from the inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so this absolutely. this book that you've written, <laughs> like, it's for people. Who's who's it for? Is it for 
people who are depressed or for people who are working with people who are depressed or related to people who are depressed who who who's it for um it's for anyone who's depressed to who's especially people who've tried pills or cbt which is a bit of a joke um <laughs> Um, how CBT. many people can we offend in one podcast episode well, I, I worked in the national health service with a whole bunch of psychologists and they regarded it as a joke themselves so you know um it's all right if you're frightened of getting spiders out of the bath it's great um but it's not going to answer the questions to the meaning of life and i don't think i can't for life miss you i can make anybody happy um I guess not everybody's looking for the meaning to life, are they? Like if we're talking no. about onions, back to Shrek's onion model it's, of, it's of existence. Some people just want the spiders out of the bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and as you know, when people come for therapy, it's marvellous. Some some people want to get rid of one there and some some people want to get rid of the whole bloody lot and never leave. <laughs> and that's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, they leave when they're back with their therapist, obviously. Yeah. Um, so this is so this book is not for not for the spider people. It's for people that have tried CBT, tried antidepressants. Oh, so. Do you have an attitude to drugs? Like just while we're you know irritating people and systems. So yeah, you know, yeah. I what's your position on medication? Well, if you work in the NHS in a so-called tertiary referral unit, you only get people referred to you for whom the antidepressant didn't work. So. It's difficult not to end up thinking, hang on a minute, I really seriously wonder whether antidepressants work. And I've definitely seen quite a few people for whom they themselves have thought that antidepressants did a hell of a lot of harm. Um, because it basically, basically, once again, if you study Indian psychology, what you need to get out of depression is the fire element. You need, it's, you need passion and power and love and energy and to stop making things happen and grab your life and it's a really that's the energy you need so if, if if antidepressants help you to feel better about a bad situation they're doing the opposite of what's helpful but having said that they obviously for some people do take the edge off it if you're in crisis they do well and i do know people who i don't think would be alive without the, the drugs yeah, well they think they wouldn't wouldn't anyway because they're highly addicted in the psychologically addictive because when people have been on them for six months or so they think oh my god if i stop taking these pills what that's going to happen to me mm. so i better carry on and and then they don't see any other way forward so they carry on taking them and taking them so um, have you ever had the experience of using so this approach that you've de developed in the book have you is this an approach that, that i can hear your life story and have you been able to use it with with clients you know, have you have you, for example, got stories of clients who maybe came to you and were on antidepressants and have done CBT who who you've been able to, you know, apply this with? I'm coming at it from a slightly different direction in the sense that what I've been doing is really observing carefully what it is that the people who completely recover from depression do and what it is that the people who don't recover from depression don't do. Right. Um, so, and some of it's the first thing that everybody has to do, I think, is to start paying attention to the really basics of health. Like exercise is actually is, is the best thing for a lot of people who are suffering from depression, if they can possibly manage it. Um, and if any people could have more support for that, that would be just fantastic. 
um, uh, and actually other basics like eating properly and learning how to breathe um, and making sure you sleep and so on. Th those things need to be in place first of all, otherwise there's really not much point in going any further. Um, and then they can start doing much more advanced things like starting to really work, notice their feelings because when anybody can notice their feelings, they don't have to be depressed anymore because they're not just noticing feelings. <laughs> um, uh, depression is a sort of huge gloop of general, generalized misery. Um, but when you, can, when you can sort of notice what's going on and say, oh, that's interesting, I'm in despair at the moment, or I'm terrified at the moment or whatever, then those are just feelings and you can actually keep functioning. Um, so that's almost like that observer self that you're, you mentioned earlier is it I remember Ram Das saying on one of the videos I watched of him but I don't think it comes from Ram Das about the um you'll know who said it um but that your emotions kind of are they're like visitors well oh it's Rumi isn't it Rumi and the guest house. Oh, yeah, yeah yeah the famous poem yeah yeah the, 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 dark, the, dark, the shame the malice meet them at the door laughing and invite them in they may be yeah. that for some new delight Yes, you see, I love that poem because that's, is that what you mean? That sense of that they're all, because that poem is all about, they're all welcome, aren't they? The, you know, the, the, the yeah. feelings that we want and the feelings yeah. we don't want, but we meet them at the door and we invite them in. And I love that image of let's have them, I, I think Ram Das says, oh, you know, sexual perversity, welcome and jealousy, <laughs> welcome and hatred. <laughs> He's braver than I am, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. So is that kind of what you're meaning by... Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Feelings, I think they're just, they're, they're software. Uh, where the software is, nobody really knows whether it's in the DNA or whether it's in consciousness, which is just consciousness. And we're all basically tuned into some kind of gigantic universal computer, or who knows? Um, we don't need to know the answer to that really. Somebody said to me the other day, something wonderful. He, he said he was starting to feel okay about not being okay. <laughs> That's yeah. Cool. yeah, yeah, yeah because <laughs> uh, we live in a culture where it's really not okay to not be okay because yeah. we you know like when it comes to bereavement yeah. you get two days off work and then you're meant to be back to it aren't you or you know have birth yes. to a child and then could you please get back into your genes and back on with it as if nothing yeah. had happened kind of yeah. we're not great at frailty yeah. are we or yeah. Um, yeah. vulnerability yeah okay so get the base gone sorry yeah i was just thinking this um this business of love, there's two aspects to starting to love more. One is an intellectual decision that I'm, I'm going to take a decision here that actually I'm going to try and appreciate everything and everybody. Um, I'm really going to appreciate Donald Trump. I'm going to appreciate Boris Johnson. I'm going to appreciate the whole world. I'm going to appreciate the birds in the garden, everything. I'm going to stop judging them and I'm just going to notice them and appreciate them. So that's a huge start. The next thing is to work with opening our heart. And that's, um, I think Western psychology actually just doesn't have the technology for that. Um, because the heart is, we all know the heart's center of love because we all say things like heartfelt and heartwarming and things, don't we? It's, but it's just not there in Western psychology. Um, but it's completely there in Eastern psychology. And I, I, I've never worked with Native Americans, but I've no doubt at all it's there as well. Um, and 
<laughs> I noticed the talking about my heart, I'm putting my hand on my heart because I can't help it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, that, of course, the yogis and people have mantras for, for that, and so do the Sufis. Um, but probably the, because all those mantras, like the word, the word, <clears throat> the word for God is hopeless. Uh, but the word Amen, the sound R vibrates if you chant it, vibrates in the heart. And the word Allah vibrates in the heart. And the famous uh, Sufi mantra, uh, La ilaha illa lahu, it all, uh, it all resonates in the heart. So that's one way of ending the heart. But the real sort of most powerful practice that I've ever seen and got involved in is, is the Sufi practice of whirling, because that physically opens the heart and it rotates the magnetic field in the heart region so it's very very powerful medicine um so have you put all this in the book because it sounds like in the book you're trying to bring together some really really practical stuff like eat vegetables go for a walk yeah, yeah, yeah. you're also bringing together uh, <laughs> kind of a bit of cognitive stuff and a bit of yeah, um yeah. You know, yeah. naming the emotions and kind of being aware of the yeah. emotions, but then you're also, are you trying to, are you, so there's a bit of psychotherapy and a bit of, you've got some Sufism in there and some Indian philosophy in there and some good old fashioned what your grandma would have said about eating your greens and getting, yeah. you know, yeah. eating your apples. Is that, is that what you're trying to do? There's no such thing as Sufism or yoga or Tantra or whatever. They're all, the same in the Eastern psychological knowledge, really. Um, I mean, the Sufis, most of the Sufi practices are actually tantric practices or Christian practices or, or yogic practices. So, so let, let's not treat them as being separate. But there's just a mass of Eastern knowledge, um, which we're just totally ignorant of. I, I, I think actually, I wonder how many yoga teachers so-called in the West actually know even the basics of Indian psychology. Of the Indian model of the mind. Um, it's all there. There was an extraordinary story actually of um, an English doctor called Dr. Rolls who went up to um, the Shankaracharya of Northern India, which is sort of rough equivalent of going up to the Archbishop of Canterbury during the Kumbh Mela. So he had about sort of a few million people to look after. And he just went up to him and said, I don't know who you are or what you're doing, but it seems to be interesting. Would you mind teaching me? <laughs> <laughs> the Shankaracharya of Northern India said, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and they mess up every year for about 20 years or something. And so it's all there in books. And this is classical. It's what you read in the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads and all that. And you're, and you're, I'm not sure that you answered the question about who this book is for. Oh no, so this book is for people who are depressed. And are they going to get, because this stuff that you're talking about is pretty esoteric, isn't it? So have you written it in a way, you must have, if you're writing it for people who are depressed, knowing, uh, I mean, so again, thinking of some of the clients I've worked with, you know, often concentration is not there, energy is not there. So yeah, yeah. How, how have you managed to pull all this stuff together in a way which is going to be accessible to someone who whose brain is not functioning and body's not functioning okay. optimally anyway? Well, some of it is very simple, and I just simply tell people how they can do it. And in other places, I've just tried to say, look, if you want to take this further, you can go and do this. Uh, and if you want to go completely mad, you can go and do that. Okay, so you find uh, For example, there's a, there's a Christian practice, actually, a forgiveness practice. 
which is one has to forgive. Um, and it's nothing to do with religious instructions or whatever. It's just that if we don't forgive people who've done bad things to us, uh, we go on holding resentment and rage forever. And it's it just, it'll, it'll give us cancer, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> it'll ruin our lives anyway. Um, and once again, we have to forgive ourselves as well, because uh, the more we live, the more we screw up, basically. We, you know, um, and we've all done terrible things, and we've all done things we're bitterly ashamed of, and we wish we hadn't done, and so on. So we have to forgive ourselves as well. So we can just decide to try and forgive, but if you really want to go for it, um, you can do an old Christian practice, which is to kneel and use the words Kyrie eleison. And as you go forward, you allow to float into your consciousness anything ghastly somebody's done to you, which you're still holding on to. And as you come back to the sitting to an upright position, you um, just imagine however you want to imagine that it's it, you're being released from it, or it's being taken away from you, or if you, if you like, God is saying it's okay, or just let it go, or whatever. And um, if you do that for about an hour, you'll have jolly sore knees, but you won't half have done a lot of forgiving. <laughs> and you, you'll never forget it either. So what I'd like is some of these things, which are, are not esoteric at all, they're just ordinary, boring old stuff in the East. Um, I just like them to just become ordinary, boring old stuff in the West. Okay. Because we're just willfully ignorant. So you sounded like you're on a mission, so I get, I'm just mindful I'm of... Definitely on, I'm definitely I was going to say, <laughs> and, I, and I'm just mindful of the time, so I'm curious of, like, what? where do you want... The, what's the future of this book? What's the intention? What's the... What, what, do you, what difference do you want it to make in the world? Um, I better not say to piss off doctors, because that would be... A, <laughs> you've already pissed, <laughs> already pissed off cognitive behavioral therapists anyway so. um yeah I, my dream would be that somebody just needs to say this stuff that's that's important because especially with the eastern stuff what happens is a few privileged people get hold of it and they then cling on to it or try and make money out of it or make it all terribly complicated or they try and make a career out of it. And that's happened a lot. And it just needs to be out there. I can remember my original teacher, Pierre Villayat, saying that um, all of these practices that we do used to be secret for very good reasons. Um, Sufis are quite good at getting crucified, just like Jesus, actually. Um, uh, but we need to go beyond that now because the world is in such a state that just let it out there. So I'm doing that. Um, but also my dream is that if people go and see their doctor and say they're terribly depressed, we can actually start doing something completely different. Like the doctor could say, well, you know, there's this um, fitness trainer that I've, I've arranged for you to meet tomorrow. And the fitness trainer is going to take you and get you moving, get you doing some exercise and so on. And then I'm going to introduce you to a dietitian to have some sessions with them to eat properly. And then I'm going to get you to meet a yoga instructor to teach you to breathe because then you don't need to have panic attacks anymore if you can breathe properly, um, and et cetera, et cetera. So people could actually really be, because one thing one is really difficult when one's depressed is to self-motivate. So, but if you can actually offer people a sort of um, menu of things they can do, which are set up for them, um, then apart from anything else, I have a lot of fun just doing that. And that's all much more relational than go home, take a pill and sit on your own, isn't it? You know, all of those involve relationships. 
taking a pill is of enormous benefit to the shareholders of drugs companies. Uh, I don't think, I'm not convinced it benefits anybody else. And actually, I'm sure you've looked at some of the research, but it's pretty flaky. Um, how, you know, how much real evidence there is for these things working. Um, you know, the, <clears throat> my umbrella organization, the UKCP, which I'm not a member of anymore, but I've heard their researchers saying the research into cognitive behavioral therapy is basically hogwash. Uh, you know, you can do any kind of therapy. And the joke is the one theme in all out therapy outcomes seems to be common as a factor in recovery is the quality of the relationship, isn't it? Well, well it's interesting. Isn't it? so when I think about my you know, therapy that I did with you, I, I honestly can't remember a single session. <laughs> Don't worry, I can. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> no, no. Be good to know sometime that I can remember little bits, but nothing. But it definitely was the quality of the relationship, and it was the way yeah. that you made me feel when I was in that room, and the way that yeah. I felt even in the darkest moments. I felt safe, and I felt heard, and I felt seen, and I felt yeah. understood. And um, cool, yeah, it's that's, just about, that's it's the just bit. About and, love. and that isn't even. It. <laughs> and that's not even a memory I think that's why the thing I can't remember because actually it's more I can't even you know when I reflect on my sessions with you or you know and it was a long time ago now wasn't it it would be 16 odd years ago or something but it actually feels like it somehow rewired stuff in a very non yeah you're right it wasn't cognitive it was a felt embodied something something I can't yeah and it did feel like love but it's a kind of it's almost using that word is a bit squirmy because I still do have like it's just such a it's such an it's such a I want to say tainted word but it's that's not what I mean it's such a, a word with it's got so many attributions hasn't it and it's almost like is there another word what what do they call it in the other traditions it's almost like how else do they like so in buddhism it's what's it called um loving kindness isn't it or um yeah, yeah. i don't yeah. know I anyway know you, i know which i know what you mean there's something about the use of the word so i guess when i think about students that i've worked with you know i i would like to think if they remember nothing more of you know i'm sure half of them don't remember anything i've ever taught them but i would like at least some of them to have felt that i genuinely was there for them but to use love feels like a bit squirmy. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's not There's something. But I kind of get it. Is that felt. So what you're saying is what the book is trying to, to move towards is away from a kind of medicalized way of understanding depression with kind of quick solutions that towards a more kind of uh you know obviously love but a more soulful drawing on some of the older traditions and philosophies and just bringing them into yeah. kind of everyday life and to uh, so I use the word esoteric and you're saying no no let's not make them esoteric let's just make them yeah. like another you know knife and fork and this one's a spoon yeah yeah, yeah. and, yeah. and yeah. so is that kind of did I get it is that what the book's trying to do is to kind of 
here's yeah. here's vegetables here's walking in the park yeah. here's sufi whirling here's some heart opening practices and yeah, there's absolutely. a plate of sprouts <laughs> absolutely and we're a very small insignificant island off the west coast of europe and you know these guys in china and india and the middle east were writing very advanced psychology books in 500 bc so why don't we listen to them um and also their focus was different really. Their focus wasn't so much on trying to supposedly fix mental illness, although I don't think Freud ever fixed, cured anybody of mental illness, but anyway. Um, so that's the NHS, CBT and Freud, we were like on the hit list. <laughs> they, they were all saying, how the hell do I get through this life without being miserable? That was their interest. Um, and you course, started off the conversation using the word joy, which is a word which we don't actually use that very much in this culture. We talk about enjoying, but the word joy, and I know that you in your whirling have used the word bliss before, you know, bliss is the word we just don't use, do we? And yet no, these are states that are kind of, that those traditions would talk about. That's because we're trapped at the moment in what the Sufis call a cognitive state of consciousness, head stuff thinking and I mean, if you go on a Sufi retreat, you try and move through seven different kinds of completely different attunements of consciousness. One is the everyday earth, earth plane consciousness. One is cognitive, which is thinking, which is quite good for your change and working out what to do next and stuff like that. Uh, that's why we're addicted to computers because they enable us to do more thinking and more information gathering. Um, the next plane is the plane of love, the attunement to love. Next plane is plane of truth, which is fascinating, they're next to each other. Um, and the next plane is plane of the sacred, and then the plane of idealism, um, and then the plane of unity, uh, which is uh, the samadhi. Uh, yeah, um, this is something I think we might need to do podcast two on, because this feels like another hole. So I want to kind of rein it in and kind of bring it. Well, that's, why, that's why cognitive therapy is such a waste of time, because it keeps you trapped in the worst state of consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay so i'm gonna put you on the spot here so if right so this book is not quite born yet is it but when it is born what's your what's your elevator pitch for it gonna be i don't know if you've got that far and it's a really unkind thing you know how are you gonna how are you gonna sell it and that's not the right word either is it but how would you sum it up it may sound mad but i'm not quite convinced it matters if it's just it'll be printed in a few weeks and maybe then it's out there, it's shifted something in the universe. And uh, if anyone wants to read the thing, who cares really? Um, uh, it, it just depends whether it's sort of tuned in or not. If um, people might not need to read it, actually, I don't know. Um, Oh, There's so such an enormous is... shift happening anyway in the universe. Everything's changing, I think. Um, so I was just put it out there, and I don't know. I'm not sure I can be bothered to market it, really. I might do. <laughs> if anybody, if anybody asks, <laughs> they can come and <laughs> they can come and get a copy. Um, so this really yeah. isn't about you being best-selling author of new self-help help solve um, through depression book who suddenly becomes a millionaire in uh, in his retirement 
except you haven't really ever retired, have you? <laughs> no, I just, I, I bought a new amplifier yesterday so I could listen to some decent music, which cost me a thousand pounds. So I could do with selling a few books. But uh, <laughs> no, it's not. But if, on the other hand, if it does make me a fortune, well, that's fine. Okay, so that so. kind of non, so, so it's, a, it's a book. What's it called again? So love and what's the strap line? The Psychotherapist Explains How to Cure Yourself of Depression. And I'm curious about how this conversation's been for you. Have you heard, like, is it is it what you thought it would be? Have, what, have you heard yourself say anything that you're surprised at? Or, you know, is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't asked you? Talking to you is always a riot. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, no, it's a great, it's a great start, isn't it? It's, um, and basically, we haven't got a clue what's going on, but I suppose to cure somebody of depression or to improve their day anyway, if you can actually try and see who they are, just, just see who they are, that's really nice actually. So, which is kind of love. Um, but I think that really helps. Um, yeah. So, so for me, that would, I don't know, so some, it feels like sometimes being into people kind of past all the, the stuff and being able to somehow hold the yeah. light, hold the light for them when they can't hold yeah. it for themselves. That's, that's, that's true. That's true. A, an absolutely fantastic spiritual practice for people to do these days is to love Donald Trump, because people are projecting <laughs> all that shit onto this one guy on the universe. And it's not okay, actually. It's really not okay. <laughs> He's just reflecting back bits of themselves they can't go with. I did um, hear something on another podcast that was really interesting that um, Trump and Hitler were, were results of the time rather than they, they were, yeah, that they were of born course. of the time rather than causal, which was kind of a, yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that. True. And so how are we going to end this, Michael? Because obviously there's 9,000 other conversations. I guess what I'm thinking is what, is there anything that you want to remember from this conversation that's useful to you? Actually, I've really enjoyed being able to talk about it because I find if I'm writing something, it's no good talking about it because the energy goes I had to write it first, but it's just the time's come, so it was incredible timing just to talk about it a bit and see how it sounds. And how does it sound to you? How's it been to talk about it? Um, lovely. Well, I've really enjoyed it, but it's... I think it's highlighted for me that it's, it's going to be a challenge to stop what people think of as being esoteric, sounding esoteric, because it's not esoteric, it's just nuts and bolts. Um, uh, yeah, um, and also this word love, but let's see if we can decontaminate it. Perhaps we can sort of scrub it clean because, yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> I once thought about mentioning the word love to an NHS manager who was so stupid he was talking about sex. Well, um, yeah, love is love. Um, it's the... <clears throat> I think somebody defined it as the unconditional acceptance of absolutely everything. 
but they left out the joy because there's a joy in relating with, with everything. Put that together, leave us with that in a neat sentence. There's your challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Love is the unconditional and joyous acceptance of absolutely everything. Is that yeah. it? And, 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 and the joy in relating with it, being involved with it. So one's not caught up in the world necessarily, but you're still involved in it. That's a challenge. And on that note, folks, <laughs> I will put Michael's email in the show notes and I will put my website in the show notes at um, But please direct all of your questions to Michael because as you've been able to hear from this podcast, um, he gets it much more than I do. I'm still very much a student of it, but thank you so much. <laughs> it has um, been fun. Um, and thanks everyone for listening. Hey, thank you for listening. Julie Leone here. Well, you can find out more about me at julieleone.com. But more importantly, if you know people or if you are someone who does a crazy thing or something that you feel passionately about or live slightly differently, then drop me an email at yoursoulworks at gmail.com. Let me know about it and it'd be great to have you or um, your friend if they want to come on to talk about the podcast. In the meantime, if you liked it, please subscribe and if you can leave a review do that way more people find out about it just wanting to share exciting and interesting ideas um, particularly at this weird covid time take care